Hello and welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. My name's Darren and I'm here with Faith. Hi. Pastor Faith. And we will get to the sermon in just a little bit, but we wanted to make some time and space to talk about something special that we've been having on Sundays. And it's a new song that Pastor Faith, you and your husband, Josh, wrote, and we've shared it with our community. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the name of it? Yeah. And where did it come from? Yeah, so it's called We Need You. Um, and I, I'm going to root this in 1 Corinthians 2 when Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Um, the, the first thing that was written for this song was the beginning of that bridge section that says, We don't need better plans. We don't need clever thoughts. We need your Spirit, O oh God. We don't want the wisdom of man. We want we want a display of God's power, which is really what the world needs. They don't need to see a show, or even in the area of worship, they don't need to hear good music. We need to see a display of the power of God. So it came from that heart cry. And then the beginning of the song kind of sets up this space where we invite Holy Spirit, we open our hearts, we clear out all the distractions, the things that get in the way and then just simply cry out for more of Him. And it's this this longing to be a, a space where the Spirit would rest mm-hmm. as a community. Yeah, I love that. That's such a the heart and core value of Garden Church. Exactly. Knowing that the Spirit is present, like He's welcome to the party and we get to celebrate. And I so appreciate the beauty and creativity that you've been cultivating, not only with worship, but just something that we can invite the rest of our community into. And, and it's so cool when, when uh, in the recording of this song, it's the first time that we shared it. And it's like people have been singing it for weeks. <laughs> and it was just such a cool thing to experience. And so we're so happy for those of you that have experienced that with us on a Sunday morning. And we want to see just more original songs being birthed from this place um, that you're talking about, just being saturated in the Holy Spirit. So we are welcoming you to stick around after the sermon where you can hear a live recording of the song, We Need You, and I hope it blesses your heart. Garden Church Podcast. I've been thinking a lot about the world we're living in right now. Uh, how in a matter of days, we are in a new world almost overnight. And in the last 100 years, there hasn't been this kind of disruption to the scale we've experienced um, we can only compare what we are experiencing uh, at this moment as similar to war. Um, and it's hard to watch every day the numbers rise. It's hard to see all of the change and the loss. Our loved ones becoming sick. Some of us ourselves are sick. We've lost jobs and careers have been put on hold. Families are in this moment disrupted like never before. And it doesn't seem like it's going away as quickly as we would hope. And trying to lead this church, um, which being a part of any church for the last 2,000 years has been primarily focused on gathering in public spaces or in private spaces. Either way you look at it, for the last 2,000 years, the church has been a corporate gathering. 
Um, and for the last few centuries, the church has been uh, focused on gathering on Sundays. And this change has been overnight. And today, this Sunday is Palm Sunday. And in the Jesus story, this is when Jesus enters into Jerusalem to begin his last week of ministry as he prepares for the cross. And I've been thinking a lot about the cross, wondering um, if the cross has any implications for how we might live during this pandemic. Or maybe wondering what does Jesus on the cross have anything to do with our everyday ordinary lives? And this morning, I simply want to share with you a story, the story that leads us to the cross, but puts the cross in a proper context. See, when I became a Christian, I was told the Jesus story, and it went something like this. You are a sinner, you are bad, and you need to be saved, and Jesus died on the cross so that you can go to heaven. And the cross was simply uh, a solution to the problem that I had with my sin. Now, This is true, this is part of the story of the gospel, but it's not the whole story. It's not the compelling Christian story. And so this morning, in the midst of this global pandemic, in the midst of all of this disruption, I wanna remind you of the story we get to tell the world. And I wanna hopefully capture this morning um, a story that is worth telling in this moment, and it has implications for our everyday ordinary life. In Genesis chapter one, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 27, it says, God created mankind in his own image. He said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Verse 31 says, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. You see, the story we get to tell the world is that it begins with life being good, being very good. The story doesn't begin with a problem. It begins with shalom, humanity living in perfect loving relationship with God. We were commissioned by God to steward his creation on behalf of God. In Genesis 2, it it reveals the way this dynamic commission, this stewardship, this power to care and create environments that would uh, empower the rest of creation to flourish. This was humanity's task. And the way it works is through loving, obedient relationship and communion with God. But Genesis 3 tells the rest of, uh, of the human story. It tells the story of Adam and Eve who choose to go their own way. They were given a choice. They could live inside the way God created uh, creation to flourish and live in alignment with God or they could go outside of that way and live on their own way and they chose to eat from a forbidden tree and the result for the world was catastrophic. Sin entered into the story. Humanity was filled with shame humanity begins to hide and the effects of sin begin to influence and infect the rest of creation. We as humans had the authority and power to steward or rule over creation and we gave that power to Satan and the rebellious forces working against God. This is what you read about in Genesis 3. And so in summary, the way the story begins is God creates everything and it was good. The world was functioning. It was in 
shalom. Humanity was living um, with power and authority as image bearers to steward creation on behalf of God. And um, the way that this functioned, the way this worked itself out is humanity living in loving relationship with God and intimacy. We had the ability to choose our way, to follow God's way or someone else's way, and we chose to go our own way. And the result is the fall. It's the effects that we see all over the world. One scholar writes, it's the vandalization of shalom, sin, shame, hiding, blame, deceit, and all the other world problems come into effect. Sickness, disease, humanity hands over authority and power of stewardship to the enemy, and then death enters into the story as the final giant enemy of God and God's way of life. The rest of the story, the rest of the scriptures is God telling, uh, or, or uh, I'm sorry, the rest of the story of the scriptures is God's loving pursuit of humanity. God's desire from Genesis 3 to the rest of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, we see God working to redeem all that he had um, designed humanity to, to be in the first place. He's working towards a, a loving mission to bring heaven back to earth and restore creation back to its original intent. And this is one giant story of God revealing himself throughout history. The Hebrews, writer of Hebrews writes this to summarize what takes place and kind of the culmination of the story, which I wanna get to. In Hebrews chapter one, the writer says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. So God spoke through ancestors, through people, Abraham, Moses, the law. But in these last days, verse two, he says, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. And listen to this, verse three, and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So Jesus is the exact representation of God. In other words, God always looks like Jesus. G, uh, Colossians chapter one, Paul says the sun is the image of the invisible God. In John chapter one, verse one, it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The climax of the story, the climax of the scriptures is Jesus um, revealing who God is. When you get to Jesus, we get to see what God looks like with flesh and bones. The gospel accounts describe what happens when God takes on flesh and bones and moves into the neighborhood. What you see in the life of Jesus is Jesus begins to restore creation. He heals the sick. He casts out demons. He brings justice. He offers forgiveness. He brings peace and shalom. Every gospel story tells this narrative of what it looks like for Jesus' life to manifest God's original intention. And Jesus uses this phrase, the kingdom of God, to describe what that means. God's reign and rule. What life would look like if God were in charge. And it's beautiful and it's good. And through Jesus, you see this beautiful image of what life could look like. But then the story slows down in the Gospels, in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke, in John. The Gospel writers kind of run fast through three and a half years of Jesus' ministry, and then it begins to slow down and tell the story of Jesus in the last week. What you see is when you get to the last week of Jesus' life, 
uh, the story begins to slow down. And there's all sorts of details that begin to emerge about what happens as Jesus heads toward the, towards the cross. The cross, in other words, is the epicenter, the focal point of the story of Jesus, but not because of what you might think. And I wanna tell you that story, but I just wanna remind you, remember that Jesus is a traveling rabbi, a teacher, a prophet who heals the sick. He cares for the poor. He invites prostitutes and tax collectors to be a part of his inner circle, his disciples. He touches the untouchables. He tells people to turn the other cheek and to live a life of love. And so Jesus is revealed as kind, inclusive, compassionate. He's the savior. He's the Messiah. And he gets arrested with this kind of message. Turn the other cheek. Give to the poor. Heal the sick. Include the outsiders. And it's this message that the systems of power want to crush and destroy. And the gospel writers slow down and they describe what happens to Jesus. And it's, it's terrible. The list of the things that happen to Jesus are brutal and gruesome. In the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's a list of all sorts of things that take place. Jesus is questioned. He's betrayed by his friend. He's spit upon when he's arrested. He's struck in the face. He's slapped. He's mocked. He's denied. He's given a crown of thorns. He's stripped naked. He's struck with a rod. He's flogged brutally. He's insulted. And then Luke 23, verse 33, it says, when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And this is the image that the gospel writers want you to see. Jesus is left to die alone on the cross. Now, 2,000 years ago, and still probably to the day, this day, Jesus was given the worst kind of death known to humanity. Think about this. Crucifixion was designed by the Romans to keep someone alive as long as possible in the most amount of, of pain as possible before you kill that person. It was a torture device used to uh, completely humiliate and defeat its victim. The Romans were experts at murder. And in this situation, crucifixion was the ultimate um, demonstration or public declaration of defeat. Roman soldiers of the Roman Empire won, Jesus zero. And this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like from the outside. This is what the Jewish leaders see. This is what the Romans see. This is what the world would see when they see a would-be Messiah dead, defeated, humiliated, stripped naked, dead on the cross. That's what you think is going on. What you see is Jesus is losing, but that is, is not how God and Jesus and the writers of the New Testament see this story. Let me just emphasize this for a moment. In this moment on the cross, if you can imagine Jesus on the cross, you have the power of authorities and the Roman Empire, soldiers, Caesar, uh, governors, Pilate, crushing this man who has taught gentleness, compassion, forgiveness, turn the other cheek, dead on the cross, laying or, or, or on the cross, the next to two other criminals. And this is what you get if you are a criminal. This is what you get if you disobey Rome. You get defeat, you get humiliation, and the power of Rome crushes the individuals. But in the New Testament, somehow, this decisive moment is not seen as a loss. 
It's seen as something completely different. The worst possible thing that could ever be experienced on earth is being experienced and endured, absorbed by Jesus, but it's not what's actually going on. And he writes says, somehow Jesus' death was seen by Jesus himself and then those who told and ultimately wrote his story as the ultimate means by which God's kingdom was established. The crucifixion was the shocking answer to the prayer that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. Let's just go to Colossians for a second. Colossians chapter two. When Paul writes about the cross, this is what he says. I love it because it's historical, it's personal, it's theological, and it's, it's absolutely amazing. He says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Okay, can I get an amen on this? The sins that were an issue, forgiven. The debt that you owed, canceled and released. The condemnation, dismissed. It's all done away with on the cross. It's amazing. This is what Jesus does in one decisive act. He takes away everything that's standing in the way of you and God so that you can enter into relationship with God the way it was intended to be, like in the garden where God is walking with humanity once and for all. You are given peace and freedom and joy. And it says in Galatians, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. This is a beautiful story. But it's not just about you. It's not just about your relationship with God. It's not just about humanity's relationship with God. It's about all of creation. Look at what he says in verse 15. Remember, Jesus alone dead on the cross. Paul writes about the cross and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. A public spectacle. This is the phrase that has me thinking. You see, Paul flips the story. The narrative is, if you were on the cross, you were the public spectacle of defeat, but Paul is saying Jesus on the cross is not defeat, it's victory. God is taking back the authority and the power that was handed over to Satan and the enemies and death itself, and then giving it back to his son Jesus, and Jesus in Matthew chapter 28 will give it back to humanity. humanity. Do you see what's going on? I'm getting passionate. Can I get some amens right now? Are you with me? Are you with me? Okay, good. God literally endures uh, through Jesus. Jesus endures the worst thing that could possibly be endured on earth and he flips it. He takes the worst thing and he uses it for good. He takes on the worst thing humanity has to give and he doesn't fight it. He absorbs the sin the rebellious forces working against God, evil. He absorbs it, he embraces it, and he sacrifices himself. And when he does this, Jesus on the cross, it's not Jesus losing, it's love winning. 
And do you see how beautiful of a story this really is when you actually get to the cross and you realize it's not just the forgiveness of sin, it's the restoration of shalom for all creation. God takes the brokenness of the world and he begins to make it whole. He takes the pain of the world and he brings healing and comfort. He takes the things that are ugly in this world and he makes it beautiful. He takes our sin, our shame, our guilt, our debt, the evil, and he takes on death itself and he flips it upside down. N.T. Wright says, since death was seen in the scriptures as the ultimate result of human rebellion against God and the failure to obey him, if death were to be defeated, then idolatry, rebellion, disobedience, and sin would be defeated along with it. Death, like a great ugly giant, would do its worst and pour out its full weight upon him. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, which we'll follow up with next week on Easter. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Come on. When we tell the Jesus story, we don't start off the story telling people you're bad and you need to be good or you're a sinner that needs to be saved. That's not how the story begins. The story begins with telling people you were made for wholeness, you were made for purity, you were made for peace and joy and deep intimate relationships with yourself and others and God. You don't need to look very far if you're living in this current situation to realize the world is broken. You don't need to look very far to realize that the world is suffering and hurting. The world knows that it needs to be saved. We just get to tell people who actually is doing the saving. You see, people are struggling with depression, anxiety, suicide, fatherlessness, addiction, And the list goes on, and in this current situation, fear, anxiety has increased. There's a pandemic going on. People are broken, and people are struggling, but the story we get to tell is a story that includes the brokenness, a story that includes sickness and fear and worry and depression and says God comes into those places. He's not absent from those places. He enters into the story with compassion and empathy, he comes into the story on the cross and he says, I know how that feels. He shows the world his scars and his wounds and he says, come be healed, come be free, come and enter into my joy. This is the invitation of the gospel. This is the invitation of the cross that Jesus says, I can handle whatever it is you have. You weren't created for that. You see, this brokenness of the world is not God's dream for creation. Jesus and John Chapter 11, it says Jesus wept. And I believe the story of Lazarus is perhaps the greatest story for how we are to live as Christians in this moment, that we know how the story ends. It ends with the resurrection and the restoration of all things. But Jesus, knowing that Lazarus is gonna raise from the dead, enters into the pain of his friends and community and weeps with them. You see, we can enter into the pain and not avoid the fear or the anxiety or the loss in this moment, but the cross enables us to, ch- to walk into the story knowing that God also feels passionate. God also feels sadness. God also feels the weight of the brokenness. 
And he doesn't come with the story that says, okay, now you gotta earn your way to me. You gotta follow these practices to become a better person. Here's a spiritual checklist. No, 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 no. The story we say is that um, you weren't designed to live life this way. There's a better way to live. When we tell the story, we get to point people to the cross and say, if you wanna know what life really looks like, what God really looks like, he's not an angry judge. He's not a distant cosmic traffic cop. He's a self-sacrificing, unceasing, unconditional, always and forever loving God. He wants you to know what he looks like. And so he climbs upon the cross to tell you that you don't have to earn your place. He'll do it all for you. Do you see how good this story really is? And when we tell the story, we get to tell people there's nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing you can do to earn this love or to make yourself worthy or make yourself good enough or be better or be good enough. All you get to do is say thank you. That's the Christian story. And the word for it being too good to be true is this word grace. Gordon Fee says, the sum total of God's activity towards his human creatures found in the word grace. God has given himself to his people bountifully and mercifully in Christ. Nothing deserved, nothing can be achieved achieved, excuse me, or achieved. Nothing can be achieved. One Greek scholar says, grace is that which causes joy, pleasure, gratification, favor, and acceptance. A favor done without any exception of return, the absolute free expression of the love of God, finding its only motive in the bounty and benevolence of the giver, unearned and unmerited favor. What do we do when we receive this story and learn to receive God's grace Maybe you're hearing this story for the first time or maybe you're being reminded of the story for the first time. What I want you to do is say yes to Jesus. I want you to invite Jesus into your life. I want you to enter into the story and we'll talk about the implications later. But Paul, in the the letter to Rome, uh, in a book called Romans, he writes for 11 chapters, this is what God has done for you. This is what it looks like. This is what mercy, this is what grace, this is the cross. He writes this doctrine of what it means for God to do all these things and then he transitions the letter to teach the church what they are to do in view of everything that God has done. In Romans 12, verse one, he says, therefore, so in other words, based off of all these other things, 11 chapters of of thinking, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, so God's grace and mercy, in the reality of what you've now heard, Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. The only thing you can do in response to grace, the only thing that makes sense is to now live in response to what you received, to offer your life back to God. You see, what we want to do is try to make things spiritual. We wanna now try to earn ourselves with God. We wanna be a better person. We wanna serve the poor and we wanna do acts of righteousness and start spiritualizing things that God never intended to spiritualize. No, no, no. What Paul is saying is start where you are. Eugene Peterson says, hey, here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, your eating, going to work and walking around life, your stuck at home life, my words, and place it before God as an offering. You see, this is where the cross has implications for your everyday life. Paul believes the revelation of Jesus and God on the cross 
is a model for everyday life. What he's saying is in view of everything you've received, now live in response to what you received. Your everyday ordinary life needs to reflect the image that you have of God on the cross. Jesus on the cross is a model for how we are to interact in our everyday world. Paul will use this image for instructing Christians how to live. Anyone here a husband? Anyone, any husband here struggling to live with patience and kindness and self-sacrificial love. Paul says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her. The model for uh, biblical marriage is Jesus on the cross. Anyone here have relationships? Roommates, coworkers, family, friends? Anyone struggling in their relationships currently? Philippians chapter two, verse five, Paul says in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus and then it describes that mindset of being obedient to death on a cross. Do you see? The cross is about everyday ordinary life. It's about how you live here and now. It becomes a model for how we interact in the world around us. So I love this story. I love Christianity. This is why Christianity is so compelling. The Christian story is not about a philosophical story. It's not a, a list of systematic theologies. Christianity is about real life. The cross is about real life and living. It's about life where you are. The story of the cross is not about a God that did something that so you can go to heaven when you die. The story of the cross is about a God who did something so you can experience heaven here and now in your everyday ordinary life at home with the kids on your commute or as you walk down to the basement to work or your garage. We don't have basements here. It's about God taking the worst possible things and turning them, flipping them, and making it be used or using it for the best thing, for good. Perhaps this morning I can just remind you, or maybe you're like me, and you need to be reminded, because this time, this global pandemic has been disorienting. It's a time of stress. It's been filled with fear. Your body's been filled with anxiety, your heart is full of worry, and maybe your life has been impacted financially or sickness, and all of a sudden the chaos and crisis has flipped your life upside down, and you only see the worst things going on. Perhaps you need to re be reminded of Jesus on the cross and the story of God. Perhaps this morning I can simply remind you of who God is and what he's like. May I remind you that God will always use the bad for good. He will take the broken things and make it whole. He will take the pain and comfort and heal. He will take even a global pandemic and use it for good. And I wanna invite you to see your life through the lens of the cross. What does God have in store for you in this time? Maybe you've been thinking about cleaning out your closet or organizing your garage, but maybe God wants to turn the time into you becoming an intercessor and a prayer warrior. Maybe this time has been filled with news and checking out on TV, but God wants to turn your heart and mind to engage in his word and study scriptures. Maybe you, uh, it's time for you to focus on your personal goals and your, the issues that you're facing and working on yourself. Maybe God wants to flip it and allow you in this time to care for other people in your life. Maybe you've been obsessed over what 
um, you have, and maybe you're, you're worried about not having enough, maybe it's time to concern yourself with those in your life that actually don't have enough. Maybe it's time to be contributing to other, other people rather than consuming all the time. I don't know what it is, but I know that God can use the pandemic and bring healing in, in the world. I don't believe God, God caused the pandemic, but I believe God is with us in it. I believe he's suffering with us. He's praying with us. He's longing for his kingdom and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And our job is to join with God in the good he wants to bring into this world. And so I wanna ask you to remember this story, to live this story, to tell this story, and look at the world through the lens of the cross because God will use you in this for his good and for his purposes. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church. Thank you.